Well, we're going to go a little off script today. We're going to go ahead and call Ephesians done. And the reason is I felt a burden at the beginning of this week. And if you know me, you know I'm not really a feeling kind of guy. So when I feel something, it probably means something's up. So I I felt at the beginning of this week that I was seeing a common thread move through a lot of different people I was talking to, a lot of marriages I was counseling, a lot of relationships I was helping, and a a lot of people who were a little bit concerned about what was going to happen when they went home for the holidays and talked with extended family. And so as I had these conversations, I realized we we need to take a pause from Ephesians for a little bit, and we need to talk about something incredibly important, something that I I talked about a number of years ago, but it was during a summer, and most of you weren't here at Grace yet. And so I want to talk with you about one of the most important things that I've studied in the course of my time here at Grace. So let me begin with a question. Um, I'm assuming some of you are probably dating or engaged out there. What if I told you that I could spend two hours with you and your significant other and tell you with almost complete certainty whether or not that relationship was going to work out? Whether or not your marriage was going to thrive or you were going to split up? Well, that's actually what four researchers claim to have figured out how to do in a book that I recommended a couple weeks ago that I want to talk to you a little bit more about today. It's a book called A Lasting Promise. These four clinical researchers followed 135 couples for 12 years, and they met with each couple every couple years, and they collected a ton of data. And from all of that data, they discovered that there was really only one primary key the determining whether a relationship made it or not. If, if they knew this key, if they had this key in mind, then they could sit down with an engaged couple and talk for two hours and then determine with 80 to 90% accuracy where that couple would be in 12 years, whether they would still be married or have been divorced. So would you like to know what that one primary key thing is that determines whether your relationship makes it or not. It's about communication. How do you communicate when tensions are high? When a situation is stressful? These researchers discovered that there were patterns in how people communicate. Some good patterns, some bad patterns about how they communicate with each other when the stress rises. And and what these researchers could then do is sit down with a couple that was engaged and get them talking about something stressful. So their blood pressure is rising. And then they would just look for these patterns. And and that would tell them whether this relationship was going to make it or not. And that's the power of communication. Relationships live or die largely based on how well you communicate when things get tense. And that's not just true of marriage. That's true in any relationship, whether you're talking about a coworker, a classmate, a parent, a child, a roommate, a friend. The quality of that relationship depends on your ability to communicate with each other when tensions are up. So if you want healthy relationships... You have to learn how to communicate well when your spouse gets angry at you for something that you said, or when your child tells you that they hate you and wish somebody else was their parent, or when your roommate refuses to do the dishes for like the hundredth time, or when a coworker accuses you of doing something bad that you didn't do, or when an uncle brings up politics at Christmas. You need to know 
how to navigate that tense conversation well if you want that relationship to work. And so let me give you a roadmap. Here's what we're going to do this morning as I I walk you through how to speak truth and love to other people. Um, I'm going to walk you through biblical principles and recent research to help you to navigate these tense conversations well. So we're going to talk first about two things that you have to have right before the conversation even begins. If you want to communicate well, you got to get some things right ahead of time. Then I'll, I'll lay out for you these four bad habits that these researchers discovered so that you can see them and identify and fight them. And then I'm going to talk to you about three steps, good things that you must include in any conversation if you want it to go well. Okay, so that's where we're headed. I'm going to start out with these two things that you got to get right before the conversation begins. It's remarkable to me. A lot of people don't understand that for a conversation to go Well, you have to do the right things before the conversation ever begins. In other words, communication begins before conversation does. Okay, if you're going to want to communicate well, you got to start in the right place before the talking ever begins. And so, two steps in particular that you have to get right first. The first is you got to learn to respect the power of your words. So I don't know about you guys. I grew up with this little nursery rhyme that I would hear all the time. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And it got to be probably early 30s when I realized that is an utter lie. I mean, seriously, that is a lie out of hell. That's ridiculous. That is stupid. The Bible's really clear about that, actually. The book of Proverbs, chapter 18. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can kill you. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that laughingly. You all know this. You've seen the guy who is still haunted by insecurity because of something his dad said 40 years ago. You've seen the woman who can't look at herself in the mirror without remembering something hurtful someone said 30 years ago in junior high. You've seen marriages disintegrate because of something stupid someone said in the heat of an argument. Words can destroy. They have incredible power to do harm. But on the flip side, they have incredible power to do good. Your words can be life-giving. We're told in Proverbs chapter 12, there's one who speaks rashly like the, the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Words that are uttered wisely in in love, they're like medicine. They can deliver someone from despair or, or deceit. They can lift someone up. And so you have to realize that in the course of a day, your words, speaking, communicating, will probably be the most serious, most dangerous thing you will do. But also the greatest potential for good. So when you're going to have a conversation, especially one that you think could get tense, you need to buckle up. You need to put both hands on the wheel. You need to realize this is serious. This is incredibly important because life and death hang in the power of my words. You're never going to communicate well until you learn to respect the power of your speech. Okay, so that's the first thing. We've got to learn to respect the power of our words. Second, we need to fill our cup at the cross. We need to learn to fill our cup at the cross before we have these difficult conversations. All of us have deep emotional needs. That includes us men who would like to think otherwise. We all 
have deep emotional needs. We need to feel valued. We need to feel loved. We need to feel secure. We need to feel significant. And the Bible is clear that only God can meet those deepest needs in our lives. I I really like how a a great scientist a few hundred years ago, a man named Blaise Pascal, he put it this way, said there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person and it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God. Now, here's what I've noticed. When, when communication, when conversations go badly, often it's because one or both parties in that conversation are trying to fill their God-shaped vacuum with that relationship. And that's never going to work. It can't work. They're, they're trying to get something from the other person that only God can satisfy. And the result is that relationship is doomed to frustration and failure. That person can never provide that. When I see those kind of relationships, the picture that comes to my mind is kind of gross is two leeches trying to suck blood off each other. That's never going to work, right? The so leech can't provide blood. It can only take it. Well, don't be a leech in your relationships. Don't try to suck out of the other person something that only God can provide you. If you want to communicate well, especially when tensions are high, then before the conversation begins, you must get your cup filled at the cross. You've got to turn to God. And the good news is the Bible is really clear. When you turn to God to meet your deepest needs, he will always say yes. God will always do that. God will meet your deepest needs. Needs One verse, many of you know this verse, John 3, 16. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead, then you receive eternal life as a free gift. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. It's not something you're hoping to get. You have it. And the result is if you have eternal life through faith in Jesus, then Peter tells us his divine power, God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us. Do you notice the verb tense of the phrase it's underlined? It's not future, will. It's not present, is. It's past. He has already granted you everything that you need in this life through Jesus. Now, that's true whether you feel it or not. That verse is true even if you don't feel like all your needs are met in Christ. They are. That is objective reality. And so you need to know that. You need to believe that so that when you sit down to have a conversation with someone you care about, especially a tense conversation, you know, you recognize that all your needs are already met in Christ. You don't need to leech off this other person. That, that's revolutionary in my marriage. When I sit down to have a conversation with my wife, Julie, I try on my better days to remind myself, what do I need from Julie in this moment? The answer is nothing. Now, there are many things that I might want, but there's nothing that I need because I have all my needs met in Jesus. And that truth, as I reflect on that truth, it frees me. All of a sudden, I don't need to be a leech. I can give. I can seek to meet Julie's desires. I can seek to care about her and listen to her because I know my needs are already met in Christ. And so for you, when you're having a conversation that you think this could get tense, you need to remind yourself, 
right now, what do I need from my spouse, from my fiance, from my significant other, from my parent, from my child, from my boss, from my roommate, from my friend? What do I need right now? Nothing. There's a lot that I might want. There's a lot that maybe they should provide me, but there's nothing that I actually need from them right now because all my needs are met in Christ. So if you know that, if you remind yourself of that, if you reflect on that truth, it frees you to be able to engage in the conversation without being a leech. Okay, so you got to get these two things right first. You got to start out by filling your cup at the cross and respecting the power of your words. Now, with the with the fundamentals covered, now let's move on to the conversation itself. I'm going to share with you the the most practical thing I've learned in the course of my marriage. This is really the most practical thing research has ever taught me in being a good husband. These four researchers I mentioned earlier, they spent all of these years discovering four bad habits or patterns that you have to avoid in communication if you want a relationship to work out. So... Any one of these four specific bad habits, if left unchecked, will destroy a relationship. All of them are that dangerous. But here's the key to recognize. Every one of us is going to lean towards at least one of these. I can guarantee none of you are going to walk out of this room being able to legitimately say, none of that's me. No, some of it's you. At least one of it's you. And that's just because by nature we're sinners, We, by nature, default to sinful patterns of communication. So as we go through this list of four bad habits, I want you to ask yourself, which is it for me? Where is my bad habit? And then you face a choice. Once you identify your bad habit, your choice is, am I going to choose to own up to that, acknowledge it, and fight it? You can't control whether you have one of these bad habits. I guarantee you do. But are you going to own it and fight it? So that when you see it creeping up in a conversation, you can resist it. For me in my marriage, identifying my bad habit, which is number four on the list, you will see, was revolutionary. Because then I knew that's where my sinful flesh is going to go every time a conversation gets tense. So I need to fight that bad habit. Okay, so let's jump right in. First bad habit they found is escalation. Escalation is that when someone hurts you, you hurt them back worse. So it just makes sense. You're going to escalate the argument. And so let me give you an extreme example. Imagine a married couple, Ted and Amy. And so Amy notices the trash hasn't been taken out and says to Ted, you forgot to take out the trash again. Ted feels attacked. And so he says, fine, fine, quit nagging me. Amy responds, well, I wouldn't nag if you just weren't so irresponsible. Ted hits back again, irresponsible. I'm out earning a living every day and you call me irresponsible. You're just ungrateful. I can't stand being around you. Amy hits the parting shot as she walks out the room. Well, why don't you just leave and no one's stopping you? Now, that is an extreme example, but that happens every day. Do you see how each party escalated the fight? It got worse and worse and worse. It started with a garbage can. Now we're ready for divorce. Yeah, so that's escalation. You see it a lot, especially with little kids. Little kids like to escalate. All right. Second bad habit, invalidation. And in validation, when things get tense in a conversation, you're going to diminish or dismiss how the other person feels. That's your goal, diminish or dismiss. So here's the first example. I'll give you a couple examples of this. Your wife comes to you and she says, you hurt my feelings when you told that joke at the party last night. And then you respond, well, come on, get a sense of humor. We were just having fun. You're making too big a deal of this. 
see what the guy did. He, he diminished the feelings of his wife. He dismissed her feelings as illegitimate. Another example, a friend comes to you really shaken up by a bad performance review that she got at work and you respond, well, it wasn't that bad. Hey, I'd, I'd be happy to get an evaluation half that good at my job. Just give it to the Lord and quit worrying about it. That's invalidation. We tend to do that a lot as Christians. Just give it to the Lord and don't worry about it. Rather than listen to each other and acknowledge the pain, we just dismiss it. So this idea of dismissing or diminishing how the other person feels, it breaks a conversation. And let me speak particularly to husbands. Guys, we do this a lot when we jump to trying to fix a problem our wife brings to us. This this is something I do. I'm an engineer by trade. I want to fix it. But when Julie shares with me, here's something that's painful in my life, something that's not going well, and I immediately jump in and try to fix it, then what did I just do? I just diminished how she feels about it. I just said, you're, you're not someone I want to know. You're a problem to fix. Okay, so that diminishes or dismisses. And it's a bad habit that destroys a relationship. Third bad habit, negative interpretations. This is the habit of assuming the worst in a relationship or a conversation. A person says or does something that could be interpreted multiple ways and you assume the worst possible interpretation of the statement or event. So... In high school, it's probably not a huge surprise to you guys, I wasn't a ladies' man. I was really nervous around girls. And so it took me all the way until my senior year to ask a girl out for the first time on a date. And the amazing thing is she said yes. And I was really excited about this date. I asked her out weeks ahead of time. But a few days before we were supposed to go out, she came and she told me, well, I forgot it's my grandmother's birthday that night. I can't do it. Now, what did I assume in my insecure high school senior self i assume this is like i gotta wash my hair that night kind of excuse i assume well of course you don't want to go out with me and so i cut the conversation off i never asked her out again i found out 15 years later from a cousin who was a friend of both of ours no she actually really wanted to go on a date with you but your negative interpretation kind of ruined that relationship before it ever began okay you see this all the time here's an example from a marriage so ted and amy again Ted has always seemed a little distant from Amy's parents, which has led Amy to wonder, does Ted really like my parents? Well, it's it's fall, and Amy says we should start looking into plane tickets to go visit my parents this holiday. Ted hears that, and he immediately thinks about their struggling budget. And so he says, I was wondering if we can really afford it this year. Well, Amy gets angry and responds, my parents are very important to me, Ted. Even if you don't like them, I'm going with you or without you. So what happened? Well, Ted said something that could be interpreted in two legitimate ways. Either he's really concerned about the budget, or he really doesn't want to see her parents. Which interpretation did Amy assume was correct? The negative one. And as a result, the conversation falls apart. Okay, so when you choose to believe the worst about a person or a conversation, that's this bad habit. Fourth and final bad habit. Withdrawal and avoidance. This one is easy to explain. When a relationship or a conversation gets tense, you shut down, run away, hit the eject button. So this could be through avoidance. Like if a coworker tells you, hey, I, I need a half hour to talk with you about something you did that really frustrated me. And you look at your completely open calendar and say, oh man, I'm all booked up maybe next month. That's avoidance. You are avoiding the hard conversation. Or it could take the shape of withdrawal. So withdrawal is that when the conversation gets tense, you basically are looking for the easiest and quickest way out. 
You're, you're just trying to get out as fast as you can. Uh, for some people, when it gets really bad, they'll just stand up and leave the room. Just not going to have this conversation. But often it actually looks like this. Like your spouse is upset with something that you said. And so you say, sorry, sorry, you are right. I shouldn't have said that. I'll never do it again. Oh, look, our show is starting. That's withdrawal. You're not really having a conversation. You're not dealing with what you said or what you did. You're just looking for the fastest way out. Okay, so one of these habits is yours. I'm sure of it. It's true of everybody. What you need to do is you need to look at that screen and you need to figure out which do I tend towards when a conversation gets tense. Might be two of them, but it's probably one that's the strongest. You need to think about that for yourself. You need to think about that for your significant other. Don't just... Look over your significant other and say, that's yours. <laughs> Take responsibility for your own first. <laughs> Figure out what your bad habit is. That is the first step to overcoming it. Because if you're aware, hey, this is what I tend to do, then, then you can be looking out for it. I mentioned earlier, the fourth one is my classic one. That's kind of my personality. And so I want out of tension. Now that I know that, though, that's been so helpful because when a conversation starts to get tense, I immediately know, Blake, this is where, what you're trying to do. You're going to try to find the quickest eject button possible. Stop. Just stop that and just listen to this conversation. It could be that what God wants right now is a one-hour painful conversation for you. Because that's what's good for this relationship with a parent or a friend or a coworker or your wife. Okay, so be aware of it so that you can engage in it and fight that bad habit. Okay, so now that we've talked about our bad habits. Now let me give you three necessary steps. These are three things that you have to do in a hard conversation if you want it to end well. So for all of us, both sides of the conversation, both parties need to do these three things. If you will practice these three steps in every hard conversation, the outcomes will move in a good direction. Okay, so first step is to slow down. Slow down and listen. James 1.19. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I love that. There's only one thing in a relationship you should be quick to do. What's that? Listen. It's the passive thing. Be quick to switch into the passive mode of listening. Okay, not speaking, not getting angry. Listen. Try to understand what the other person is saying. Don't rush to speak. Don't rush towards anger. So, this is incredibly important in marriage. I can't even tell you how important this is in a relationship. You need to just slow it down. Slow down, slow down, slow Because when you slow it down, you give yourself time to process. And when you have time to process, then you have time to answer the, really the most important questions. Like in a conversation when it starts to get tense and you feel anger growing in your heart, you need to give yourself time to ask, where's that coming from? Why do I suddenly feel anger? If you see the other person getting angry, you need to give yourself time to ask yourself before you ask them, why do I think this person's getting angry? You need to give yourself time to ask what, what unmet needs or assumptions or expectations are fueling this tension. If you can get down to the root of the matter, then the conversation is useful. But if you don't slow down and give yourself time to think it through, then you're going to be fighting about the surface stuff and you're going to get nowhere. Okay, so slow it down. I've never regretted the times I've slowed things down. I've only regretted the times that I've sped things up and spoken or grown angry too quickly. So slow things down. Second step that you have to have if a conversation is going to go well, you have to have the courage to speak truth. It tells us in Proverbs 27, verse 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. 
deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Sometimes that we think that keeping the peace is the most important thing. No. Actually, it is loving to, to wound a friend. And what that means is you speak convicting truth. You speak hard truths. You, you call out sin. You, you rebuke error. You, you challenge one another towards obedience and towards love and towards growth. That's actually the kind thing to do. It is not kind to ignore sin and dysfunction in another person's life. So you need to be courageous. You, you need to be willing to say those hard truths. For me, like I said, that's, that's my step that I have to work on because I want to withdraw. I don't want conflict. I need to be willing, though, to, to enter into that because that's what love does. Love speaks truth even when it's hard. But as you speak truth, you've got to remember step number three. You speak that truth with grace. It tells us in Colossians chapter 4, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt, you think a dish, you put salt in it. How many of those bites now taste like salt? All of them. The salt works all the way through. And the idea is let grace work all the way through a conversation. Every part of it be gracious. Now that's easy to say. We talk a lot about grace. I mean, that's the name of our church. It's the name of my daughter. But what does it actually look like to be gracious in a conversation? Let me give you five just practical ideas. Okay, five practical things you can do in a conversation when it gets tense. This might be really useful for those of you who are going to have a tense conversation over the holidays with extended family. Here's five things to keep in mind. Number one, reaffirm your commitment to the relationship. I don't know if you've discovered this, but it is universally true, always true. Conversation doesn't go well when people fear that the relationship will end. Conversations only go well in an environment of safety. If a person feels like, wow, what I say or what you say could be the end of this relationship, then fear kicks in. Self-protection kicks in. Things get bad quickly. Tensions escalate. Emotions escalate. So if you want a conversation to be productive, then please do not wait for the other person to ask, do you still like me? Be proactive in that. Don't wait for your spouse to ask, do you still love me? You should start the conversation with that. I love you. I'm committed to this forever. Never going to think about any other option. I'm completely committed to you. Now, in that environment of safety, let's now talk about this hard thing. Okay, so when you reaffirm your commitment to that other person, then you create an environment of safety and security that allows hard conversations to go well. Does that make sense? So be reaffirming your commitment. Do it proactively. Don't wait for them to freak out and ask you. Second, assume the best. Assume the best about the other person, about their motives. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 tells us that love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What does that mean? It means you... You assume the best about the other person, even if there is this voice in your head shouting that, no, they've done something horrible. Even if there's a voice in your head jumping, shouting, grasping at the negative interpretation, you say no to that. In grace, I'm going to keep giving this person the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to keep assuming the best about their motivations, about about the interpretation of what they're saying. 
if I assume the best and it allows the conversation to keep moving in a productive way. And so when you feel that your mind is jumping towards a negative interpretation, you have to take control of that thought and say, no, no, the person has not said that yet. Okay, I'm assuming that's where we're headed, but they've not said that yet. Let me assume the best. Let me latch on to a positive assumption or interpretation and see where the conversation goes. So we give grace to each other by assuming the best about one another's intentions and meaning. Third, remain persuadable. There's nothing as insufferable to me as a person who is absolutely convinced he's right. I hate that. Why have a conversation with someone like that? That's horrible. What you want is to have a conversation with somebody who, even if they really feel like they're right, they are willing to be persuaded that they're not. To me, that's the root issue behind why political discourses collapse in our country. No one's humble anymore. No one's willing to think, oh, I'm human, so maybe I'm wrong about this. I love when you sit down with somebody and they're like, I've, I've researched this, I've thought about this, I really feel that this is right, but I'm willing to listen to contrary evidence. Let's have a productive conversation here. That's actually one of the things I admire the very most about my boss, about Brian. He has very strong opinions about just about everything in the world. And yet, every time you sit down with him, he remains open to persuasion. I love that. Even if he really believes that this is the best way or this is the accurate interpretation, he remains persuadable. I can persuade him towards another position. That's humility at work. And that makes conversations and relationships go well. So when you sit down to have a conversation, remain open to the possibility that you could be wrong. Okay, Be humble about that. Fourth practical idea. Surround rebuke with encouragement. Sometimes you're going to have to say something hard. There's just no way around that. But when it is time to say something hard, what you want to do is you want to sandwich it with encouragement. And I know that sounds silly, but that's actually what my wife and I say to each other. We call it an encouragement sandwich. It sounds lame, but it's so true. If you have something hard to say, that's okay. Say it, but surround it before and after with words of encouragement. And you will be surprised how much better the moment will go. You'll be surprised how much easier it will be for that other person to embrace and receive your rebuke if you've surrounded it with encouragement. So for me, I always think of balance scales, you know, like those old-timey scales that swing one way or another. Make sure that in every conversation you have, you feel the encouragement side more than the rebuke side. Even if there's some serious rebuke, it's, it's good to fill it with some encouragement. Point out some things that are good. Point out some things you're, you're encouraged about, and you will see conversations go a lot better. Fifth step for you to think about. Practical idea. Refuse to hit back. Escalation only happens if both partners participate. Something Julie and I are trying desperately to get our twins to understand. Fights only happen if you both participate. It only gets worse if you both participate in this escalation. Either one of you can short-circuit the escalation at any time by choosing to be gracious. Now, what is grace? We talk about that all the time. Biblical definition of grace. You give somebody something good that they don't deserve. Okay, well, that's, that's what this is. Somebody just hits you verbally. What do they deserve? They deserve to get hit back. They deserve vengeance. What do you give them instead? You give them a gentle answer. You give them grace. You don't give them the vengeance they deserve. And the result is that the conversation moves in better directions. The book of Proverbs, it tells us in chapter 15, a gentle answer turns away wrath. It turns away wrath. 
It stops the fight before it progresses. Okay, so in escalation, it only happens if both partners participate so you can stop it in its tracks if you'll refuse to hit back. All right, so that's five practical steps for you to practice grace in your conversations. If you will look out for the negative patterns and fight against them and instead fill your conversations with, with truth and with grace, you will see your relationships move forward and grow, whether we're talking about a marriage, a friendship, parenting, at work, wherever it might be. Final step for you guys, which in some ways is the most important. It's the enduring step. If you want to learn to communicate well, you have to work at it. So they taught you how to talk when you were two, but they didn't teach you how to communicate. Because there's a huge difference between talking and communicating. You learn to talk at an early age. You never learn to communicate perfectly in this life. It's something we are always working on. Communication takes a lifetime to learn. And so if you want your marriage or your friendships to go well, you must commit yourself to always be learning how to communicate better. Something you should always be studying. It is in many ways one of the most important skills you will develop in this life. How to communicate well. So my two favorite books on the subject outside of the Bible. The first one I've mentioned before, A Lasting Promise. That's the book with the four researchers who found the four negative patterns of bad communication. If you've not read that yet, especially if you're married, this is, in my opinion, the most important book written on marriage other than the Bible. Really, really useful book. I highly encourage you to get it. Read through it. Identify your tendencies towards bad patterns of communication. Learn how to fight them. Learn how to develop really good communication with your spouse. So that one's good. It's particularly relevant to marriage. Crucial Conversations is another excellent book, and it's more broadly applicable. So how do you have good communications with anyone when it gets tense? This book will give you really practical tools for how to engage in a conversation, especially when you sense, man, emotions are rising, things are getting bad, what do I do? They'll tell you. Here's what you do. Here's the tools that you put into practice if you want conversations to go well. You will be stunned at how much better your quality of life will be if you will put in the work to learn how to communicate well. Now, one thing that you guys should know is this is something that you're never too far gone on. Okay, for some of you, you're young, and I'm challenging you to think about this for the first time. For some of you, You've been married for a long, long time, and you're thinking, wow, we've developed some negative habits. How are we going to fight these? The good news is it's never too late. Why? Because God lives in you, and God is stronger than any of your bad habits. So because God lives in you, and because you now have some resources, I'm going to challenge you. No matter how long you've been married, no matter how much it feels like maybe you're beyond hope, no, you're not. And so get one of these books, read it, learn from it, and put it into practice. If you'll do that, whether we're talking about marriage or friendship or family or roommates, if you will do that, it will help your life work so much better and it will help free you to be a light for Jesus in this world. And that's ultimately what this is about. It's Christmas and it grieves me to think that there are so many people scared about hard conversations over Christmas. This time when it's supposed to be about joy and love and the gift of the Savior, and yet we are scared about hard conversations we're going to have. My prayer for you guys is that you walk away with some practical tips that will make the holidays really go better so that you can enjoy the, the love of the Savior that he has for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has 
taught us and instructed us how to speak well with one another. You're a God who loves good communication. You're a God who loves for people to to understand one another and empathize with one another. You're a God who loves strong families and strong churches and strong communities. And, And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would equip us with these practical tools that would help our conversations to improve. We pray, Lord God, that you would teach us how to be skillful when we're communicating with others, especially when the conversation gets tense. I pray, God, that you would help us to develop tools um, that we can use in those tense moments to make the conversation work out well. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would grow each and every one of us to commit to really love one another deeply and well. And I pray that you would strengthen our marriages and our friendships and our families. And that as, uh, as one family, as, as your church here at Grace, Lord, that our relationships would indeed be infused with grace, like salt, that it would work its whole way through. So that when people look at us and how we treat one another, they would see your grace at work. We pray that so that Jesus might be lifted up, Lord. We don't ever want our lives, our conflicts, our dysfunction to distract this world from the beauty of your Son. And so we pray that you would strengthen our marriages and our friendships so that when people look at us, they would see how great he is. We pray that would especially be true this Christmas season, that you would bless each and every person here as they get to spend time with their significant others, with their kids, with their parents, with extended family and friends, I pray that your spirit would work through these practical steps to unleash through them incredible love and grace and patience in every conversation that they have. We pray, Lord God, that you would be glorified in and through us in these coming weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you guys. For those of you going home, we'll see you in a month.